and it is so good to be with you. Here I am, and I'm, I'm wearing a stole for the first time in my life. Uh, I've been in ministry for about almost 20 years. Um, in worship ministry, I've been a youth pastor, uh, I've preached, taught people for a long time, but there's something special about wearing this today. And even in the space that we share together this morning, um, even though it is a virtual space, um, it's something that I hope you find um, has some weight to it this morning. And like many of us, uh, last night was Halloween night, and um, I'm not sure how it went for you, if there were trick-or-treaters coming to your door or not, what you did, if you had kids. Um, we had our spooktacular uh, here, and um, not the way we expected but we still made the best of it, and we had fun together, and I hope you had fun with us. And then this morning, today, is what we know of as All Saints Day in the, in the history of the church. Um, and that's basically, obviously, many of you may know the, the history of Halloween, which comes from All Hallows' Eve. It's the Eve of All Saints Day. And it's this time in the year where we make space to grieve a bit to remember a bit, to make room in our house for death. And one of the ways uh, that people do this around the world, um, it looks very different. Um, my, my mom is from Colombia, half of my family lives in Colombia, and part of the tradition is what's called Dio de los Muertos. And Dio de los Muertos looks different in different parts of Latin culture. It wasn't actually that big of a deal in Colombia, but what a lot of the traditions we know of uh, come from the traditions in Mexico, southern Mexico, and northern Mexico. And part of that is what's called an ofrenda. Uh, an ofrenda is sort of a, like a little altar that people either put in their house or they take out to um, graveyards and different things like that. And this is the first time my family has ever created an ofrenda and we've put it in our house. And here's a picture of what it looks like uh, here in our hallway. And um, it has some pictures. It doesn't, it doesn't have all of the pictures of people that we want to remember this time, but uh, it has, you know, there's a picture of my grandparents on my mom, on my, um, on my wife's side. Um, and there's my friend Raleigh, who was a mentor to me, one of my spiritual fathers, and then Sana, who I just lost uh, just a couple weeks ago, um, one of my spiritual mothers. And... Um, she is living in this way with me, and there's a picture of my, my son, Liam, too, who we lost back in 2008. And so this is the way in which we bring sort of death into our house. It's a very strange tradition. Um, it's a strange ritual because you wouldn't think it would be as comforting as it is um, to kind of live with ghosts um, because often in our culture, we like to run from death. That's what we're really good at here in the West. We like running from death, and especially this year, right? I mean, there has been a lot of death, um, a lot of loss, a lot of grief, um, loss of loved ones, loss of fresh air. Our state is simultaneously burning and freezing. Um, loss of... Uh, consistent routine, 
the loss of a normal school year. I know you parents may have been feeling that for sure. A loss of, well, serenity. Uh, like maybe some of you out there, uh, there's a lot of uh, stereotypes or like uh, cliches about what happened during COVID. And the cliche we fall into in my family is we bought a COVID dog. We didn't buy a hot tub. We bought the COVID dog. And um, that has created a lot of disruption in our house because I grew up with dogs, but my family, the rest of my girls did not. Um, And uh, there has been this new routine that we have every morning is we take our dog, whose name is Eleanor. Uh, We take Eleanor out for a walk. Um, And on one particular morning walk, I mean, she's just now nine months old. Um, She's never experienced fall, so blowing leaves, um, chasing everything. uh, And uh, it's both simultaneously cute and really frustrating because it's in the morning and you don't want to have her yank you all the time. And um, but she's just like in complete belief that these dead things uh, are alive. And that she can chase them, and she can she can hunt them, um, uh, because this is her first fall, and she doesn't know that these leaves are not alive. They're just the shrunken forms of what was alive at one point. And uh, it occurred to me that the reason I have this dog, of course, the reason God brings a lot of things in my life is to br- to give me another teacher. And so in this. My dog is teaching me, in the words of Christ, this is you. This is what you're doing. You're chasing a lot of dead things. A lot of dead things that you think are alive, and they were alive at one point, but they're not alive anymore. And uh, that chasing generates a lot of anxiety. A terrible amount of anxiety. And chronic anxiety is the topic of this next series that we're calling Serenity Now. So maybe some of you know that reference. Uh, It comes from a very big hit TV sitcom back in the 1990s, early 2000s, called Seinfeld. Um, And here's a clip to kind of give you an idea of why this, this catchphrase was so big in the 90s. Serenity Now! Serenity Now! What is that? Doctor gave me a relaxation cassette. When my blood pressure gets too high, the man on the tape tells me to say, Serenity now! What happened to you, pal? Joey Sanfino and some of the neighborhood kids, they ambushed me with a box of grade A's. Are you all right? Oh, no, no, I'm fine, fine. Serenity now. Serenity now, serenity now. So you're using Frank's relaxation method? Jerry, the anger, it just melts right off. Serenity now. Serenity now. Oh. Hey, what happened to you? Serenity. Serenity now thing doesn't work. Just bottles up the anger and then eventually you blow. What are you in the you were in the nut house? What do you think put me there? I heard they found a family and you freeze it. Serenity now. Insanity later. Serenity now, insanity later. Wow. Right? You feel what I mean? Like these, these little forms, these methods, these sort of strategies that we, that we use to try and 
keep a tight lid on our anxiety to try and give us some sort of temporary relief. And what they do is they create more problems for us in the future. And um, they keep us from really actually getting curious about the source of all of this anxiety. You see, we won't be able to get any answers or understand this anxiety uh, without that sort of questioning spirit. So we're not curious about where this desperate race to cure our anxiety comes from. One of the tools or resources we've been using as a staff um, is based on this theory uh, that's known as family systems theory or Bowen theory. Uh, it comes from a man, his name was Dr. Murray Bowen, who was a psychiatrist and a researcher during the 1950s and 60s, and he developed this, this way of understanding, uh, well, I'll just read to you the definition that comes from the Center for Bowen Theory. It is that Bowen Theory is a theory of human behavior that views the family as an emotional unit and uses systems thinking to describe the complex interactions in the unit. So this theory is constructed around eight interlocking concepts. But the basic uh, principle of Bowen theory is this. You can't really understand yourself outside of first understanding the system that you're a part of. You can't understand yourself without understanding the system that you are a part of, the, sort of the family. So one classic example of this might be, um, you know, within maybe a nuclear family and you have you know, two children, a mom and a dad, and there's one children, one child, we'll call him Paul, and Paul has got maybe, he's got issues with anger or maybe uh, addiction, and he is so disruptive to family life, and the family gets together and they go, like, what are we going to do with Paul? Paul needs counseling, Paul needs to get into a treatment program, Paul needs to do this sort of thing. But what Bowen theory would say is that Paul actually is the identified patient. He's just the sort of the, the expression of the illness that exists in the whole family. It's not just Paul that's dealing with an issue. It's actually the rest of the family. The rest of the system is in a state of unhealth. And so to understand Paul, you have to understand the system that he comes from. And family systems... Uh, aren't just um, uh, confined to families. They can be bigger systems as well, like uh, a country can be a system. And getting familiar with that system is a matter of kind of integrating pieces of ourselves instead of running from them. I think that we need to explore some of these unconscious vows that we've made, some of these painful truths in our history, painful truths about our system that we have maybe cut off. And in order to get healed, in order to find transformation, we need to kind of jump in to some of these hard things about our, our history. There's a story. It comes from one of the early leaders in the Jesus movement. His uh, name is Paul, an Apostle Paul. Uh, the Apostle Paul, as he was called, started a lot of churches in Asia Minor. And um, in this one letter he writes to one of the first churches in Corinth, he's writing to these new followers of Jesus uh, about the practice 
of remembering Christ's death and resurrection. It's something we call communion. We're going to do that in just a moment. And they've been together for a while now and as a church, and, um, but then they kind of start to go off the rails. Um, and I just, it's one of those things when I'm reading scripture and I really kind of get the sense of Paul's tone when he's writing to these people. He's like, kind of like a parent. Like, I leave you like for five minutes and I turn around. Well, let's just read this pas- passage of scripture here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 33. Um, I'm going to read it from the NIV, but whatever translation you're familiar with, you can read it there at home. But here's, we're going to start in verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have been differences among you to show which of you, has, has, uh, which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead to your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? I love this. It's like, don't you guys have food at your house? Like, what is the deal? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For what I received from the Lord, what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But, If we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that no one will be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. You should all eat together. So what is Paul trying to say to the the early church in Corinth. And what does that mean for us? Well, I think the first thing is rather obvious. He's writing to address this division in the church. He's saying, listen, you are part of a body, a family, a system. You never act alone. I mean, you can stuff yourself with bread and wine all you want, but that doesn't make it communion. And you can do every Christian thing you want to do. 
that doesn't mean you're taking communion. I mean, you come to this table, you have to eat with everyone who's here. You have to eat with everyone who's here. So not only is he, he addressing the division that exists in the body, but he's also reminding them the purpose of the table, the purpose of communion. That this is an invitation to integrate that love and loss of your story with Christ. He says to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So at this table, you get reminded of death. The death in your life. In ways in which you may have cut yourself off from other people. Maybe the ways in which you've shut yourself off from the cries of injustice. If you have unquestioned the largest military empire in the history of the world, if everything in you recoils when you hear the words white privilege, coming to this table honestly is going to be a problem. On the other hand, if you have a hard time thinking about sharing this table with one of those QAnon-believing, MAGA-hat-wearing fundamentalists, then... And if that makes your blood boil, you're going to have a hard time coming to this table because you don't get to invite. You just get to join. You don't get to invite. Taking communion is not some way to prove to the world what you believe. That's not what this is about. According to Paul, this is about accepting the invitation from Jesus to bring all of your messy history and surrender it and be transformed and healed. It is essentially about demolishing the category of enemy. Think about it. Like if Jesus was saying, love your enemy, what do they become? They become your friend. If you love your enemy, you end your enemy. This is where enemies come to die. If you don't believe me, like, uh, look who's eating with Jesus. Right? It's, it's not just Mary and Peter, but it is Thomas and it is Judas. Everyone is there. So not only is he saying, hey, there's division among you, and listen, the purpose of the table is not about, like, another place to just tell yourself what you believe. No, it's an invitation. Then the last thing I want to say is that he's warning them of the natural consequences of eating in an unworthy manner. Judgment. Wow. Judgment. And what I think Jesus is saying is, or what I think Paul is saying, is that if you try and come without looking at the death in your life, without addressing all of those things, you get to live with your own hell. The hell you created. I mean, hell, as far as I can tell from Scripture, is not something that God created, and it's, it's something that we create. It is something that is defined by really only one word, and that is separation. It is separation. It is ways in which we have cut off. So God's judgment, therefore, is really only an observation of the reality that you're living in. An observation that's saying that way of living 
cut off from me and cut off from other people, that is hell. That is hell. So participating in this act of communion and refusing to acknowledge the death that you are living with will only intensify your feelings of judgment and torment. If you come with hate in your heart and you're sitting next to that person who's, who just makes your blood boil, that's judgment. But if you're able to surrender that, isn't that healing? Isn't that restoration? This election season, it's been a nightmare, right? It's been so hard. Things I never thought could happen in this country. People saying things about other people. Just uh, the, the utter contempt for another human being. Screaming and name-calling. The protesting, the violence. Even the tragedy of police brutality and shooting of unarmed black bodies. These are the identified patients of our sick system a system we are all part of, right? Because in a system, there is no them and me. There is us. There is our problem. The same with the body of Christ. The mean and the violent parts of the church are connected, that, uh, that are connected and sort of disengaged. And over-intellectualizing and bureaucratic, the institutional parts that want to ignore the problems, they're part of it. And just because you're confused or overwhelmed does not mean you are not responsible. For any church leaders listening right now, protecting the church's nest egg or property or circling the wagons, You're connected to the same system that enables injustice. Ouch. I'm I'm with you. And it's tempting to scapegoat those people, the them. But they are you. They are us. They are the flashing warning lights on our dashboard saying we are not okay. We're not okay. We start to become okay when we confess all those skeletons in our closet, when we invite those ghosts to the table, and we make space for death. Not only the death of those we've lost, but the the those we didn't know we loved before, the ones that maybe we failed to love. It all belongs. It all belongs when we stop running from it and we start moving toward it. Thank you for listening to the Mission Gathering Thornton Message Podcast. You can watch our weekly services on Facebook Live every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. And to learn more about joining a group or serving with us, visit our website at mgthornton.org.